these gods that war within us. That's what we've been talking about for these last several weeks. They battle for a position of glory in our lives and so much is at stake because whomever we choose, that is what determines our destiny. And yet for many of us, the concept of idolatry is something that's... In fact, idolatry is the number one problem in the Bible. More than a thousand verses speak to it. More than 50 commandments in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, speak against it. It's only one of four sentences in all of Judaism that could have the death penalty attached to it. To God, idolatry is a big deal. And in large part, we kind of dismiss it. It's antiquated. It's irrelevant. It doesn't really apply to us today. And I would say nothing could be further from the truth. Everything rides on this because every day we make a decision. Will I worship the Lord God or will I worship some other God? And how we answer that question makes all the difference. And it's not just, and we've talked about this, not just a sin problem that we've got, that oftentimes if we look deeper, there's a false God on the throne of our hearts. And that is what is keeping us from having victory over that recurring sin. And we've also seen that idolatry in and of itself is a sin. There's good things in our life that we turn into God things. And we're going to talk about that today. Listen to what Tim Keller writes. Sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. It is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Sin is primarily idolatry. And so we've been spending some time reflecting, has this good thing become a God thing in my life? Have I made it more important than it should be? As John Calvin explains, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. And I think he makes a great point. And I think it's certainly true with our topic today, talking about gods of love. And let me just say from the beginning, this one's going to be a challenge. And so I want you to just keep an open mind and study with me, take notes, maybe ask some questions. I encourage you to go to a study group tonight and let's explore this deeper. This is the kind of thing where if you've never thought of it this way, this may be kind of a, a big pill to swallow, and so you may need to swallow hard and think about that. So open your Bibles to Genesis 22. If it's more convenient, it's on your study guide there. And the verses are going to be on the screen as well. But these gods of love are so difficult because they're the people we love. The people that God's Word tells us to love. And that's where the challenge becomes so real. Because sometimes they can replace God on the throne of our hearts. We get things confused. These are the gods that Augustine would have referred to as our disordered lives. And that is to say, they're legitimate loves, we just got things out of order. And that's exactly why it's a problem and why it's a challenge is because they are legitimate loves. We are supposed to love these people. And they can become too important. So let's look at this familiar story. Abraham is asked to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. But I want us, as we read through this familiar story, to do so through the lens of idolatry, just understanding this concept and what is going on. Why does God ask Abraham to do the unthinkable? It begins this way, verse 1. Sometime later, 
God tested Abraham. So we're told right off the bat that this is a test. It's only a test. As if he wants us to know that God would not allow Abraham to go through with this because we know Scripture. We understand that, that there's no place ever in Scripture where God allows a human to sacrifice another human. We know that going in. So as the story opens up, we're told sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, verse 2, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What a request. All of us are familiar with this story. Even if you don't much know much about the Bible, you've heard of this story. But just as a reminder, Abraham had been promised this boy when Abraham was 75 years of age. And at age 100, 25 years later, still no boy. Sarah's 91, still no son. Yet God kept His promise. He worked this amazing miracle. And this promised son, this promised boy was born. They named him Isaac. It means laughter. And think about the joy that was brought to that home. Now, a baby does that for us. We know that. To have a a newborn is a, a joy like nothing else. And I think about Abraham and Isaac. They were probably not like any other parent. I mean, just like other parents. They would go in at night and watch them to sleep just to make sure they're still breathing. Did you ever do that with your own child or grandchild? You know, and just as they were learning to walk, as they were just toddling, as they were just trying to figure things out, you just sitting on the porch and watch them play, and how many times do they tell their son, be careful, watch out, be careful. They didn't want anything to happen because this was their son. So much was riding on him. He was the promised one. What would have happened? What would it be like if something happened to him? They couldn't imagine it. Do you have someone like that in your life? People who mean everything to you, you can't imagine life without them. Maybe for you, like Abraham and uh, and Sarah, it's a child. Or maybe all of your children. They can quickly become a reason for living. Think about them all the time. You look in their eyes, you see their smile, you know their, their gait, you can recognize their cough and their sneeze in a crowded room. You know so much about them. And it starts that moment they wrap their fingers around your finger and you're hooked. They can become your everything. Or maybe for you it's a husband. Maybe it's your wife. Or maybe it's the pursuit of a spouse that's become a God for you. And in our culture, and this is where it gets tough, romantic love is held up to be the utmost experience, is it not? That's what life is all about. So many movies is about the boy getting the girl. Romantic love has inspired so many words of poetry and art, music. Who can forget songs like Whitney Houston singing, I Will Always Love You? Or Celine Dion from the Titanic when she sings, My Heart Will Go On. Even if you want to forget them, you can't. You know, they're just there all the time. Or Stevie Wonder declaring, You are the sunshine of my life. Who would you say that to? You are my sunshine. For Abraham and Sarah, it was Isaac, no doubt. 
He was God's greatest gift to them. And what we see here, he also turns out to be God's greatest test for them. And that is true for us as well. Our greatest blessing may turn out to be our greatest test. Do you have a spouse you don't deserve? A job that you love? Maybe financial blessings that allow you to live comfortably? Maybe God's blessed you with a child? Maybe He's blessed you with a special gift in one way or another? Will these points of blessing carry with them a test of your allegiance? Will this blessing become a competition for God or cause you to grow closer to Him? Will this blessing become your primary affection or will this blessing cause your affection for God to increase all the more? In Genesis 22, what we see here is we get a front row seat of Abraham answering that question. Who comes first? Verse 3, it begins, early the next morning, Abraham tells us, here's how you deal with false gods. You don't delay. You don't put it off. Don't procrastinate. And he doesn't do that. Early the next morning, and you keep reading here, it says he takes with him a couple of servants. Now, when's the last time you went on a trip and you took with you your servants? So we read through that, and, and what does that tell us? Abraham was wealthy. In fact, if we would use our terms, we'd say he was filthy rich. Reading Scripture, he was so wealthy, he had so much, one of the wealthiest men of his day. But for Abraham, money, stuff, wasn't a problem. And then we studied a couple of weeks ago about the rich young ruler. That was an issue for him, but not Abraham. He had lots of money, lots of stuff. But that's not a challenge for him. That's not an issue. Instead, God knows for Abraham, this promised son has the potential to become everything. Look at verse 5. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Now notice the word worship. If you underline your Bible, underline that one. Underline the word worship. This is the first time in the Bible that word appears. Now, in studying Scripture, a hermeneutic key is that pay attention to the first time a word appears in the Bible because there's something there. And what we learn here about worship It's used to describe a man who is sacrificing something great to God. Something that he cherishes so much. And he's declaring to God that God matters most. So worship is not just something that takes place when we come into a church building and and gather, but worship takes place every day. Worship takes place any day. And we need to understand that. Would you make some kind of declaration that tells God you matter most? That is worship. That's what we learn from this passage. So we don't come to church to worship. We come worshiping to church. It's a part of our life. Every day you have an opportunity to worship, to say, God, you matter most. Here it says the two of them went on together. Isaac, we know, is probably mid-teens. Old enough to understand what's going on. He's looking around. He knows something's not right. Look at verse 7. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. 
Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Put yourself in that moment. Hold that knife in your hand for a moment. I want to push pause on that story and talk about our disordered lives. How would you do with a test like this? You ever read this story and wonder what would I do if it, if it were me, if God asked this of me? Because truly, this is a test of the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. Now stay with me with this. An idol can certainly take the form of someone we love, and it often does. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think all of us at some time or another have struggled with this. Times in life where we look to a relationship with a person more than our relationship with the Creator. These gods of love can be the very people God has called us to love. And yet they, they can become a substitute for God. And we replace Him with these relationships. Now, we don't mean to do it. It's sort of like it just sort of happens. But it is a choice. And we can make that choice. One woman, young, young mom, shared this. She said that her children had become for her a false god. She was asked, what do you, what do you mean? You mean that, that you just made them too high of a priority? She said, it's not so much that. It's that I've given them control of my life. I've given them the controls of my life over to my kids, and they have the power to determine whether I have a good day or a bad day. I've given the controls of my life over to my children, and they can determine whether I'm an angry person, whether I'm a depressed person, whether I'm a person who's in despair. You see what's happening here? She realized the joy of the Lord was not her strength. The joy of her children were her strength. And she was confessing she wasn't very strong. In fact, she was feeling weak at the time. See, by definition, whatever controls you is your God. Whatever consumes you, whatever you allow to have that much influence, that much control. So is there a relationship that determines whether or not you're a joyful person or a content person? This mom went on to say this, for her, she was living life to please her kids. In her life, everything revolved around making her children happy. What if we use that as a definition for an idol? That you spend your life making it happy. Pleasing. Think about that. So maybe it's true for you. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a parent. Remember what we said in our last study? That when we begin to ascribe divine attributes to something or, or someone, they become a false god for us. Last week we talked about success and money. This week we're talking about relationships. So we looked at that relationship as a source of satisfaction or significance or security or even salvation. See what we've done? God wants to be our source of satisfaction and security and God wants to be our salvation. But we're looking to somebody to do that for us. There's some pretty graphic language in the Old Testament of, about being guilty of idolatry. And the picture that's painted, and you read it over and over again, is about people having an affair on God. Spiritual adultery. When we allow something, someone, to become more important. And God uses that term adultery 
to describe how he feels about it. When you give your allegiance to some other God, to God that's just like adultery. That's how strong it is to him. That's what it feels like for him. And some of you understand the pain of unfaithfulness. Because the person who vowed to give their life to you chose instead to sleep with someone else. And you know that pain. You know that betrayal. You know that anger. You have been through that. And God is using that to help us understand. That's what you're doing to me, He's saying. Where you're choosing to put someone else on the throne of your life, these disordered lives. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how absurd it would be to tell your spouse, I'm going to start dating other people, but you're still my number one. You know, we just know that's just absurd because there's just some things you, you don't share. And that's how God loves us. Because I'm not going to share. He doesn't want to just be a first. He doesn't want there to be a second. He wants all of you. And Jesus taught this as well in Luke 14. Now, there it tells us in the background there were large crowds, and Jesus doesn't seem to be impressed with the size of the crowds. He's concerned about the commitment of the individual. And so he says some very hard words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What was Jesus saying here? Is he really telling us to hate people? When the rest of the Bible tells us that these are the very ones that we're supposed to love and care for? A couple of things we need to understand. One, the word that's translated hate here is, is really meant to communicate a lesser love. It's more of a, a, a graduation. It's more of a one's more than the other. It means literally to detest on a comparative basis. Denounce. To love someone or something less than someone or something else. To renounce one's choice in favor of another. David Stern wrote the Jewish New Testament commentary. He said this, The theme of the verse is not alienation from one's family, but a cost of discipleship. Nothing, not love for family, father or mother, or even one's own life is to take precedence over loyalty to God and His Messiah. Well, here's something else we need to know when we read these words love and hate in the Bible. When we read them, we interject all emotions into them. And they're full of emotions. When we say, I love you, or I hate that, there's a strong feeling that goes with that. Because that's the way we use the words. Not true in Greek or Hebrew. In the biblical languages, there weren't necessarily these strong emotions tied to them, but rather, they were used to communicate a level of commitment. There's a verse that appears both in Malachi that Paul quotes in Romans, where God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. God didn't hate Esau as we use the word. But we know from the story, he preferred Jacob. Jacob got the blessing. Jacob got the lineage. So we understand the words in that context. Matthew records Jesus saying, maybe we can understand it better this way, Matthew 10, 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Here's what I want us to understand. When we get this commitment right, and when we put God first, then all these other relationships 
start to become relationships that honor God to be what they were meant to be when God gave them to us. I put this on the screen, and I want you to get this, and we're going to talk about this even more tonight. When you put someone else in place of God, when you make a relationship a false God, it's the most destructive thing you can do, both to that person and also the relationship. See, we think we're doing best for them, and really just the opposite. I want to talk about this for a moment. A couple of blanks if you want to fill these in, because five things, at least five things happen when you put someone else ahead of God. The first one is this, unrealistic pressure. Think about these, and I think you know this already. When we turn a spouse into a God substitute, we're putting an amazing amount of pressure on them. Because what we are really saying to them is, I want you to do for me what only God can do for me. And some of you may feel this in your relationship right now. Maybe you've got someone who's putting that kind of pressure on you because when they're unhappy, they want you to make them happy. When they're having a difficult day, they're stressed, they, they want you or what you can do for them to help them to find peace. When their world is broken, they want you to make everything okay. And you feel a lot of pressure if your spouse is looking to you to do all of that because you're not God. And you can always make things right. And they're really, in essence, asking you to be God. And that's a lot of pressure. You have the key to my happiness. You have control of my contentment. If you would just be more like this, or stop doing that, then I would be... You see what we're talking about here? This pressure. You're looking to someone else to be your God. You're asking them to do what only God can do. And that's a lot of pressure. So let me ask you, are you doing this to someone? right now. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's someone you're dating. Maybe you're pressuring them. You're not using those words, I know, but really you're looking to them to do for you what only God can do, and that's a lot of pressure. Well, number two, there are unreachable expectations. And we often do this to our children. Of all people, to our children. We place on them these expectations, we look to them as a source of significance. We allow our homes to rotate around them. And we push them, and we push them. And they grow up thinking, I'll never have grades good enough. I'll never have a trophy big enough. I'll never be able to please my mom or please my dad. And the problem is that we're exchanging a relationship with God with our children. We're asking them to be our source of significance instead of God. And we turn to our children, these little ones, and we're putting these unreachable expectations. And what they hear is the message that they, these children, give you, the parent, identity and purpose and meaning and life. That's God's job. Why do we think we can put that on our children? And these are expectations they cannot meet. And they can't cope with it. Well, number three, another thing that happens, there's unreasonable disappointment. And here's why. Unreasonable disappointment. Because any God, any false God, that is, is ultimately going to lead to disappointment. It's true for all of them. Money, relationships, physical pleasure, success at work. Any false God is going to leave you disappointed. And if you're disappointed in life, if that's your outlook, if that's where you are right now, it's because you've made something or someone the God of your life 
instead of the Lord God Himself. Because God's not letting you down. He's the only one that can satisfy you. Think about this. You're driving your car, and some of us, like when we're running out of gas, you get down to a quarter of a tank, you go ahead and fill up. But there are some of you that like to push it. And you're so thankful that not only do you have a fuel gauge, you've got the little light that comes on, or maybe even the little built-in computer that tells you miles to empty. I want to ask you to raise your hand how many of you have gone beyond that. I said I was not going to ask you. I meant to say that. Look at how many hands went up. Oh my goodness. But imagine if you run out of gas and then you get out and you're mad at the car for not going because it's out of gas. It's unreasonable, isn't it? It's your fault. It's not the car's fault. You're asking the car to do something it cannot do. And yet when it happens, we can get mad at the car. Pretty unreasonable. And that's what we do in our relationships. We ask people to do for us what they cannot. They're just humans also. And they cannot do these things. Here's another one. Undeserved criticism. Undeserved criticism. Whenever someone isn't meeting your expectations, if you're in a relationship with someone, they're letting you down, it's wide open for this undeserved criticism. And criticism is a poison especially to a relationship. Because you want that person to fulfill you. You want them to meet your needs. They're not able to meet all your expectations and so you're disappointed. And the criticism just flows. You show me a person who is constantly critical, who is always nagging, a person who's negative, and I will tell you someone whose delight is not in the Lord. It's in something else. It's in someone else. And that's the key to their criticism. They complain and they whine and they're critical because it's not meeting up with their expectation. And it's not fair. It's not reasonable. Number five, there's unfair comparisons. Unfair comparisons. And comparisons do so much damage in a relationship, and we know this. When you want a person to do those things for you, they disappoint you, so you start looking around, who else can meet those needs? If I was with this person, then I would be satisfied. If I was with this person, then I'd be better off. If I was with this person, then I'd be more happy or more content. And we play the compare game. And when we do that, it leads to this difficulty. But even if you exchange one relationship for another, ultimately, you're still unsatisfied. And do you know why? Because unconsciously, subconsciously, you want that person to do with you what only God can do. You're making that person compete with God, and that person is falling short. I may have shared this quote before. Don Delafield is a counselor, and he says, the number one problem in marriages is not adultery, it's idolatry. When we make a spouse the God of our life, and let me add, before I move on, it could go both ways. Sometimes you try to be the God for your spouse. You want to be the source of their happiness, to meet all of their needs. I'm responsible for their happiness. I'm responsible for making them satisfied. I got to make sure my child does well. You ever fallen for that one? Maybe you're trying to be God because you want that person to find their satisfaction in you. You want to be their everything. Bob Russell is one of my favorite preachers. He used the phrase, I think fits here. 
he, he uses this phrase, a top button truth. The idea there, you know, when you're buttoning your shirt, if you get the top button wrong, then all the buttons are wrong afterwards. But if you get the top button right, then you get all the other buttons right. And we understand that. This is one of those top button truths. When we get this right, it affects everything in the best way. Our relationship with our kids, our relationship with our spouse, relationship with our friends, the person you're dating, whomever, it all falls into place. But until we get this right, nothing else works. So if you're having a relationship that's causing you frustration and difficulty, don't zero in on that relationship. Spend time thinking about your relationship with God. Make sure you've got that one right. This is so counterculture. I mentioned a moment ago about all the literature, books, music, movies that, that just idolize, may I use that phrase, idolize romantic love. That that's the ultimate experience is to have that moment, that feeling, that, uh, that, that romantic, whatever you call it. And I'm all for romantic love, so this is not a slam for that. In fact, I think we need that in our marriages, desperately. But I think we get it wrong sometimes because we listen to the heartbeat of culture and they tell us things that are not true. But they sound good and so we write them in our cards. Let me give you an example. Go home and Google most romantic line in movie and you're going to see a bunch of websites. But what I noticed when I did that is, is one that appeared on almost all of them and toward the top was a line from the movie Jerry Maguire. Remember that movie? Toward the end of the movie, I've never seen it, but I watched the clip. Because I thought, well, what did he say? I wanted to know. What was the line? You've heard the line. You've even used the line, perhaps. But in that movie, Tom Cruise, talking with Renee Zellweger, and he says three words to her after this impassioned speech. He says, you complete me. You complete, didn't that sound great? You complete me. Think about this. If there was a Jerry Maguire 2, and may it never be. But if there was, and they explored that relationship, what you would see is that Renee would have all kinds of problems living up to that. Do you, do you see the point? Because another person can't complete you. Only Jesus can complete you. And He wants to do that. And the moment you take someone else off that throne, it can become idolatry. When you wake up in the morning, He's there. When you want to talk about your day at breakfast, He's there. When you feel frustrated and discouraged, when you're sad, He's there. He knows how you feel. The Bible says He keeps track of your tears in a bottle. He laughs with you. He cries with you. His very words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the God who loves you so much. But is He your primary affection? Here's what I've learned. And I've confessed this through this whole study. This has been sort of a turn your life upside down kind of study because what does this mean and what does this look like and what have I got right and where have I missed it? And I'm telling you, I've seen a lot of times where I've missed it. I've probably told Sia before she completes me. 
But when Jesus is truly the Lord of my life, I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I'm a better son. I'm a better friend. When Jesus is truly the Lord of my life. And that's exactly what happened with Abraham. Isaac's on the altar. The knife's in hand. Look in verse 10. Then he reached out his hand. He took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now I know. Now I know. You have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Is there something you're withholding? Let's pray. God, you are Lord Most High. You are our one true God. And we invite you and you alone to reign on the throne of our hearts. And God, we no longer will we ask you to share our affection and our attention with someone else or something else. So we confess to you our idols and we smash false gods before you and we confess, God, that we've exchanged you, our glorious God, for gods that don't measure up. They cannot do for us what you can do. And God, we, can, we repent and confess of our sin of idolatry. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a possession, maybe it's a passion of some kind that's become just too important to us, all-consuming. We put that on the altar, God. We give it to you. Lord, we confess that sometimes we've allowed good things to become God things. We've made them too important. We want those things to draw us closer to You. We want these people to increase our affection for You. And God, we thank You for those. Would You teach us to see everything through the lens of idolatry? Help us to be aware of gods that are at war for the position of glory in our hearts and our lives. God, we come to You and declare that just as the people gathered at Shechem the days of Joshua and at Mount Carmel the days of Elijah, that we can say we choose You, that You alone are worthy of our worship. We make a choice and we choose You. Sir Jesus, we pray. Amen. On Mount Moriah, Abraham was asked to make the most ultimate sacrifice a father choosing between the Son and God. Why Mount Moriah? Just a few thousand years later, another sacrifice would be made in that same region. Genesis 22 makes sense when you read it, but it really makes sense when you turn to the end of the Gospels and you see, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Because not far from Mount Moriah, in that same region, God the Father has a son on a hill. And God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Paul would write it like this, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son. Sound familiar? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Our invitation is asking you for it to be Jesus. Won't you come while we stand and sing?